Romans chapter 8, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the 8th chapter of Romans, where we'll pick up at the 5th verse and read through the 13th. might remind you, as you are turning, that we've considered so far in this mountaintop chapter, Romans 8, as it's been sometimes called, even the pinnacle of Scripture itself. I say we've considered that because of the work of three great persons, the three great persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and because of two great works that those three persons have done and are doing, justification and sanctification, and uh, because of all of that work, we've been brought to one great and marvelous life of serving our Lord with joy and with confidence. Now, the nature of that life that we live is going to be unfolded more by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the very one about whom he writes, about the Holy Spirit, specifically about the life that we live by the Spirit who resides in us, who are in Christ. That we'll be reading in just a few moments after first we have prayed to that same Lord for the same Spirit to do a marvelous work right here, right now. Let us pray. Father in heaven, the same Holy Spirit about whom we have sung and to whom we have sung and prayed this morning. The same one who brooded over the deep at creation. The same one by whom our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The same one who inspired these very words we're about to read. The same one who comes and meets us in this house. May he do just that and illumine our hearts and minds by your word. Give us awe, our Father, and a true reverential holy fear for the fact that he is here. And speak, for your servants are listening. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, we begin at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now let me pause right there and say that when you hear in this text this word flesh, Though Paul does use the word flesh in in several different ways in his letters, in this text we are to think now of flesh as that principle of fallen, sinful human nature. Our fallen humanity is what he means by the flesh. So, for those who live according to the flesh or according to their fallenness, according to the principle of their fallen Sinfulness is the point. Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you are a fan of the old Star Trek series, I mean the ones that ran in the 1960s when William Shatner was in a little better shape than he is these days. You might remember that famed episode in which something terrible goes wrong with the transporter. You remember the whole beam me up Scotty thing. Anyway, Captain Kirk is beamed up on board, but some sort of terrible mishap takes place during the transport, and somehow the good captain's good side gets transported separately from his evil side. His good, moral, upstanding, gentle, loving, principled side gets beamed separately from his evil, low-down, rough, selfish, unscrupulous side. It takes a while for the error to be detected, but when it is, the philosophy of the writers begins to kick in and we find the good doctor on board explaining to Kirk's better half that both sides are necessary. You must have both, your good side and your evil side. Everyone has both, you see, and without one, the other will simply languish and die. Without our evil side, our aggressive and lustful and decisive side, our good side will eventually waste away under the weight of its, well, goodness. Decisions become impossible, actions become hindered. We've got to have both, the doctor explains, the good and the evil, albeit the evil controlled by and directed by our good side, That lives in every one of us. Of course, Star Trek has been known for years to be a television show that wore its humanism on its sleeve, and in this case, a sort of dualistic humanism. Little has changed. It is still the prevailing opinion in our culture that everyone, everyone, is sort of a mixture of of good and, and bad. For most people, it is asserted, especially in a culture like ours, the good dominates the bad most of the time, in most cases. When it's the other way around, of course, people commit crimes and they go to jail. Their good sides, it seems, simply weren't able to keep their bad sides in check from overpowering and getting the best of them. 
The point is that everyone is basically the same, just a mixture of good and bad. Now, that may be the view of the culture around us, and alas, it has made great inroads into the church as well, into the thinking of many Christians in our time and place, or perhaps it has been just the other way around, that the church has actually taught this to the culture. But it is certainly not the view of the Bible. According to Scripture, there are two, and only two, kinds of people in the world. And it doesn't matter where you go, from China to India, from Australia to Siberia, from the United States to the United Kingdom, everyone you see, everyone who lives, everyone you meet on the street, walking through the mall, Everyone in all the world falls into one category or the other. And those categories are these. Those who live by the flesh and those who live by the Spirit. And what we have here before us this morning is basically a description of the two set side by side, virtually cataloged for us, by their contrasting characteristics, beginning there in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Okay? So right off the bat, we have two minds. Either a mind set on the flesh on the one hand, or on the Spirit on the other. Then on to verse 6. We find out that corresponding to those two minds are two ends. Death or life. In verse 7, we see them in relationship to God, either hostile to him or humble to him, either rebellious or submissive. In verse 8, another comparison is implied at least. One pleases God, the other doesn't. Another couple of comparisons are made or at least implied in verse 9. In some, the spirit lives, in some he does not, but in whom he lives there is Life, in whom he does not, there is death. In those whom he lives, those in whom he lives belong to God. Those in whom he does not, do not. The comparisons go on, but I want to pause right now to draw the first lesson, the lesson that lies face up on these pages and indeed on the whole of Scripture's pages as well. There are but two categories of men. That is all. Divide the world as you please, by race, by nationality, by gender, by age, however you want. But from the perspective of heaven, from the view of heaven, there are only two kinds of people. Those in whom the Spirit lives and those in whom he does not There is not even, as has been popularly taught to generations of American evangelicals, a third kind of person, the so-called carnal Christian, who lives partly in one world and, and partly in another. That's nonsense. That is anti biblical thinking. Either the Spirit of God lives in you, or He does not. And as that question is answered, So your state is determined. 
and your end. Now, you've heard me say this before. The Bible spends most of its time when focusing on Christians either telling you who you are or commanding you to live like who you are. It's either identifying you or calling you to live according to your identity. Now, here's Paul doing both. He's not saying that you're a little bit good and a little bit bad, that you have two personalities and that you have to have both the evil and the good in order to live like poor Captain Kirk. Now, he's saying that you are either one or you are the other. And the day-to-day issue is this. Will you live today more like who you are or who like you used to be? before the Spirit of God took up residence in you. I'll spend the rest of the time this morning developing just a little bit, three points in particular from the text. Because the Spirit lives in you, there is a newness about you. New, that is, compared to your old self in sin, before you were converted, whether that was in your mother's womb, or when you were five, or when you were 15, or when you were 50. First, because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, you have new minds. Now, when you hear that word mind, and there I did it, I pointed to my head, we immediately think of intellect. And that's not all bad, for the intellect is important in our thinking. That is where we begin our living. Or to put it in more biblical terms, out of the overflow of the heart. But minds here means more than just the intellect. When the Spirit of God dwells in a person, lives in a person, He gives to that person a whole new bent, a new inclination, a new occupation, a new disposition. There's a whole new way of thinking that is totally different from the way a person thinks, the way a person is bent in whom the Holy Spirit does not live. On the one hand, there is the mind or bent of the flesh that manifests itself on different levels. In the realm of the body, fleshly mind, the fleshly mind pursues sexual immorality and gluttony and slothfulness. In the realm of the soul, the fleshly mind pursues lust and impurities of imagination and pride and envy and malice, and avarice. It is set on these things. It is set on all that is evil because that is its inclination all the time. Even when such people are doing what appears to be, on the outside, good things, and might even be described in some sort of way as good, yet behind those deeds there is only evil because the intentions of the heart without the spirit are basically fundamentally evil all the time. On the other hand, there is the mind or the bent of the spirit, and I mean capital S, spirit, of the spirit of God that manifests itself on different levels. In the realm of the body, the mind of the spirit pursues purity, pursues 
purity of action, kindness, moderation, hard work, obedience, and so on. In the realm of the soul, the spirit mind pursues pure thoughts and humility and generosity and forgiveness and love. It is set on those things and on all that is good because that is its inclination. And when such people do good things, they are genuinely good things because they come from hearts that are fundamentally good. And the difference, the reason why we may call such hearts good hearts is not because they have made themselves good. It could never be. It is because they have been made good by the one who lives there, who lives in that art, namely the spirit. In such a heart, the spirit is, to use one of J.I. Packer's expressions, like a house guest, noting and caring about and being involved in everything that happens in one's heart and life, fulfilling his role as a gracious Willing guest, he acts as a change agent, transforming us into Jesus' moral likeness from one degree of glory to another, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. This, by the way, is why, precisely why, it is so torturous, a struggle, For a Christian, as we saw back in chapter 7, when sin returns and pops up again and again and again. Yes, the mind, the very spiritual condition of a spirit indwelt man or woman, boy or girl, has been changed, fundamentally changed. But that only makes the sin that remains in every one of us so much more the foreign element that it is. Like a transplanted organ that's being rejected by the patient in in whom it's been placed, it makes for all manner of turmoil and struggle, a sin that remains in every one of us who have nonetheless been transformed by the Spirit of God. Struggle we must. And that's the point. You, brothers and sisters, are no longer, listen carefully, you are no longer of a fleshly, but rather of a spirit-filled mind. Now live that way. Purge from your thoughts what is evil and despicable and really foreign from who you are. Those organs that have been transplanted in your minds that are foreign and to be rejected, remove them. They don't belong there. Do not let the sin that remains in you defeat you, but set your minds on the things that are above And if the sin that remains in you makes you sick and repulses you like it did Paul, then you take that as evidence 
that it simply doesn't belong there. Because it doesn't. Man earthy of the earth and hungered feeds on earth's dark poison tree. Wild gourds and deadly roots and bitter weeds. And as his food is he. And hungry souls there are that find and eat God's manna day by day. And glad they are. Their lives are fresh and sweet. For as their food are they. Which brings me to the second point. That because the Spirit of God lives in you, you have new lives. Along with new minds, with a new bent, a new direction, a new impulse, God has given you, brothers and sisters, new lives. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What a terrible warning. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. God has given you, Christians, a new life. He has. I know that's hard to believe, isn't it? Sometimes it... You, you, you can hardly be convinced that it's the case because it's so hard to distinguish sometimes your new life from your old one. And to a certain extent, we all are always facing just that struggle. I remember years ago counseling a young woman whom none of you know, who had just recently been converted. And she would come to me or call me and she would say, in broken tones, I did it again. This was a young, converted, sweet lady. But I knew exactly of what she was speaking. She had slept with yet another man the night before. And now she was kicking herself. And so disappointed with herself. She knew she was a new creature in Christ. The scripture told her that. The spirit lived in her. She knew that she had a new life, but somehow that old temptation would not give up. And she found herself again and again in bed with different men, hating it all the time. Hating it. Why? Because it went against her very nature. Who she was. Who she is. In Christ. I read somewhere Jerry Bridges quoting someone else, making the point that sanctification is more often characterized by desire than by performance. And to a certain extent, that is true. But such a person also needs to remember by faith in Christ. By the Spirit, he or she has been given a new life to live. He must remember that he is in no wise a debtor to the old flesh, to the old life. That people who live by the Spirit put to death those deeds, even if that war, even if the slaying of those deeds must take years and years and battles and battles 
and battles, maybe for the whole length of the life in this world. This is who you are, Christians. I'm not telling you what to be. I'm telling you who you are. You are new creatures. You are indwelt by the Spirit. You have been given a new life. Now I say live like who you are. Keep in step with the Spirit who lives in you, who leads you day by day. Remembering finally third that because the Spirit of God lives in you, you have a new end. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's the point. The same spirit of God, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, is also going to give you life. Going to give life to your mortal bodies. To this thing. New life. Ah, you say that's not for a long time. Could be decades, could be centuries, could be millennia before God raises me from the dead. And that's true as far as it goes. But the length of time matters very little in the scripture. That reality, Christian, of your resurrection, sure to Come by the same spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, simply must now wrap around, however long it will be from now, must wrap around and take hold of you today. You will be raised again by the spirit, and your mortal bodies shall have life. The fact that the same spirit who lives in you now, who raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago, is someday going to raise you from the dead simply must have its effect in your life right now. Now, exactly how it does, I can't tell you. But in some marvelous, mysterious way, the regular contemplation of your resurrection from the dead someday must animate your heart and your mind and your life today, which is in part why we confessed yesterday at the memorial service for Mrs. Donaldson that we do not think nearly enough about the resurrection to come. We do not encourage one enough with words of our Lord's coming again and the resurrection from the dead nearly as much as we should. Somehow, brothers and sisters, the consciousness of the fact of our resurrection to come must do its work in us today. For to this you have been called, for this you have been saved, and toward this end you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been given a new mind. You've been given a new life. You've been given a new end. And all of them by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you right now.
Now, Christian, you live who you are. Amen.